Now, this morning, we are continuing our journey with Ebenezer Scrooge toward redemption. And today we're going to look at Scrooge's time with the ghost of Christmas present. Now, although I've always had a slight issue with the name of this ghost, the ghost of Christmas present, because technically this ghost is taking Scrooge into the future, because these events happen Christmas Eve night, and this ghost shows Scrooge stuff from Christmas Day, so it's technically a little bit in the future, but I guess the ghost of Christmas tomorrow just doesn't quite sound as good and go with the flow Dickens was going with, so, all right. But naming conventions aside, this has maybe been my favorite section of the book. Uh, I love the portrayal of the specter, the attitude of this spirit. Yeah, the spirit is a boisterous personality and is honestly a little sassy. He seems to always have the perfect comeback for Scrooge. Uh, the George C. Scott version of this, I think, has one of my favorite scenes in any iteration of A Christmas Carol. Uh, Scrooge is making fun of uh, his his business partner, uh, Bob Cratchit's family's dinner, and just kind of how bad and small it is. And I swear the, this actor has to be on like roller skates or something because he'll, he comes in frame, like Scrooge is looking face on and you just see the peripheral come in and with perfect comedic timing, he just comes in because it's all they can afford and just like slides out of frame. It is a mixture of exceptionally funny, but also kind of sharply stabbing. And I think that is why I like this ghost so much. It's just, his personality is... You kind of laugh, but then afterwards you're like, oh, that that was actually hit something very real and very important. But together, Scrooge and the spirit visit several different Christmas celebrations. They, like we said, go to the Cratchits. Uh, this is the family of Scrooge's overworked, underpaid employee. And here, Scrooge observes a family that, really in large part because of Scrooge, is financially impoverished. But a family that is overflowing with love, a family that is overflowing with faith and is rich in so many ways that Scrooge is not. This has a pretty big impact on Scrooge. And then from there, the spirit takes Scrooge into the depths of a desolate mine and out into, the, into a solitary lighthouse. And in both of these locations, Scrooge finds the normally somber inhabitants, the miners and the lighthouse keepers, are finding ways to celebrate. Even those, these most somber of people are finding joy in Christmas Day. But next, Scrooge, not Scrooge, the ghost takes Scrooge to the house of his nephew, Fred. And in fact, takes Scrooge to the very party, the very celebration at which Fred had invited Scrooge earlier that day. The celebration that Scrooge called a humbug. And was the reason that Scrooge kicked his nephew out of his office earlier that day. And I want to focus on this scene. Because I think it is here, in the midst of this party, that Scrooge takes his biggest step toward his path to redemption. The party is described as an extremely joyous affair. There's good food all around. There's lots of games being played. There's just joy going on. Now... I want you to notice how Scrooge reacts to this, how Scrooge reacts to the fun, the joy, and particularly the games. So I'll start reading. There might have been 20 people there, young and old, but all played. And so did Scrooge. 
for wholly forgetting in the interest he had in what was going on that his voice made no sound to their ears. He sometimes came out with his guess quite loud and often guessed quite right. Two, for the sharpest needle, best in Whitechapel, warranted not to cut in the eye, was not sharper than Scrooge, blunt as he took it in the head to be. The ghost was greatly pleased to find him in this mood, and looked upon him with such favor that he begged like a boy to be allowed to stay until the guest had departed. But the spirit said this could not be done. Here, here, here is a new game, said Scrooge. Only one half hour, spirit, only one. Now this is a very far cry from Scrooge at the beginning of the story. Here we see a man joyfully playing games, begging to stay, almost like a child bargaining with their parents for just, just 15 more minutes of screen time. And things get better. After the last game ends, Nephew Fred offers up a Merry Christmas to the, as far as the guests of the party are concerned, the not-present Ebenezer Scrooge. Fred says, A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to the old man, wherever he is. He wouldn't take it from me, but he may have it nonetheless. To Uncle Scrooge. Uncle Scrooge had imperceptibly become so gay and light of heart that he would have pledged the unconscious company in return, and thanked them in an inaudible speech if the ghost had given him time. So, Scrooge, Mr. Humbug himself, Mr. Everyone Who Goes About With Merry Christmas on Their Lips Should Be Boiled in Their Own Pudding and Buried With a Stake of Holly Through Their Heart, is wishing everyone a Merry Christmas. This is a massive change. And the fact that this massive change is first visible at Nephew Fred's party, I don't think is an accident. Fred is a really interesting character. Fred is the son of Scrooge's beloved sister, Fan. Now, Fan died before the events of our story take place. And from the book, it's unclear how she dies. In some adaptations, it's a disease. In some adaptations, it's through childbirth. But in every adaptation, her death hits Scrooge extremely hard. She seems to be have been one of the few good elements of Scrooge's early life. She is his confidant and arguably his best friend. So losing her really propels him, shoves him down his current path of self-isolation and disdain from others. Now, I would argue that Scrooge's redemption was something that started long before the events of this book, long before this fateful Christmas Eve. I would say that the events of this night could have completely played out and would have meant nothing had someone not slowly been painting planting, or painting, these seeds in Scrooge. Had someone not been slowly chipping away at this stone facade Scrooge is putting up. Now that someone was Nephew Fred. Remember, earlier, not in the Christmas party, Fred gives this speech about a 
interaction or his, his feelings on Scrooge. So this starts out with some of Scrooge's nieces showing a less than happy attitude towards Scrooge. I have no patience for him, observed Scrooge, Scrooge's nieces. Scrooge's nieces, sisters, and all the other ladies expressed the same opinion. Oh, I have, said Fred. I am sorry for him. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried. Who suffers from his ill whims? Himself, always. Here, he takes it into his head to dislike us, and he won't come dine with us. What is the consequence? He doesn't lose much of a dinner. The consequence of his taking a dislike to us and not making merry with us is, I think, that he loses some pleasant moments, which could do him no harm. I am sure he loses pleasanter companions than he had than he had find in his own thoughts, either in his moldy old office or his dusty chambers. But I mean to give him the same chance every year, whether he likes it or not, for I pity him. He may rail at Christmas until he dies, but he can't help but think better of it. I defy him. If he finds me going there in good temper year after year and saying, Uncle Scrooge, how are you? If it only puts him in the vein to leave his poor clerk 50 pound, that's something. And you know what? I think I shook him yesterday. This last paragraph here is super important, is key to this entire story. Because it gets at the idea that the very person, the epitome of Scrooge's pain, of Scrooge's fear, Fred, the visual reminder of the loss of his sister, the thing that Scrooge really fears the most, is the very person who is most actively trying to redeem him. I think it's just a fascinating idea that the thing Scrooge is most pushing away out of fear is the thing that is most actively working toward hope. Now, this is a theme that we see woven through the biblical text a lot. This idea of fear being transformed into hope. And maybe my favorite and most applicable for this time of year comes from Matthew 2. Now, Matthew 2 opens with the visit of the Magi, or the wise men. They come, they visit Mary and Joseph. They see an astrological sign over in their homeland that a king has been born in Israel. So, they travel over, and naturally the first place they go is the palace. That, that, that's where you would go to find a newborn king. Well, Herod, the current king, is not happy to hear about the birth of a new king. Because Herod is super jealous and really wants to protect his power at all cost. So, he sends the Magi to look for the child, with the hope that they will return and lead Herod to Jesus so he can be killed. So he can cut off the threat before it starts. However, God warns the Magi and they don't go back to Herod. They kind of skirt around and leave. And this is where we're going to pick up our story. So this is Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Now, after they had left, the Magi, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, 
took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt. And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. So the family flees to Egypt. Now, Egypt and Israel have had a, an interesting history, to say the least, in the biblical period. On the one hand, Egypt is characterized as a land of plenty, a land of provision. Egypt seems to always be one of the, the big players in the field, one of the, the big boys, if you want to call it that. And you see this in the, toward the end of Genesis, when Joseph's brothers, who are living in Israel, come down to Egypt seeking aid. Israel has been ravaged by famine. They're going to starve. So they come to Egypt seeking help, and they find it. They end up staying there, living there, and having a good life there. But, on the other hand, Egypt is also a place of captivity and fear. Because the descendants of those brothers who came to Egypt seeking and receiving aid were eventually enslaved by Egypt. Now, this enslavement is one of the defining cultural memories for the early people of Israel. Egypt is a constant reminder of the people's collective worst memories, and thus their collective biggest fear. Egypt equates with fear to them in the biblical period. Now, in this story, Egypt becomes the very living embodiment of God's hope. God took a location that was a symbol of fear and oppression and turned it into a location from where sprung the ultimate hope and the ultimate freedom, Jesus. God was able to take something that was an, a symbol of the worst fears and turn it into a symbol of the best hope, redeeming the feelings of Israel fear into hope. And the same thing is true of Christ himself. Jesus took death, the thing that is maybe more feared than anything else, and turned it into a symbol of hope. The death of Christ points to the amazing hope of the resurrection and of eternal life. It's almost ironic that our symbol of Christian hope the cross should, is originally a symbol of torture and death and fear. Fear becoming hope. And the amazing thing is that Christ is still performing this work in us today. This is what happens when we let Christ into our lives. When we open up our hearts and have Christ in, Christ will transform fear itself into hope. Now, let's pause for a moment and think about really the idea of fear. What is fear? I think we often think of fear as just something scary, right? Like something that scares us. But dig deeper. That's kind of a surface level de definition. Dig a little deeper. What is at the core idea of fear? Really it's rooted in respect and honor. Here's an example. Am I afraid of my adorable little cat, Meowpatine? 
no, of course not. He's he's a little cat. I'm a grown man. He's a tiny cat. I'm not afraid of the cat. Am I afraid of a mountain lion? Oh, 100% yes. Absolutely, and you should be too. Why? Because I recognize that in some ways I am inferior to a mountain lion. I am respecting some elements of that animal. Mostly big, sharp claws and teeth. So this is why Proverbs 9 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not saying that we should be scared of God, that God is a big monster hiding under a bed and so we need to be afraid of it. No, no, no. It's saying that we should respect God's authority, that we should honor God. Oftentimes, fear is a synonym with awe. So when we fear something in our everyday lives, in some way, we're honoring it. We're elevating it, giving it power over us. And one of the amazing gifts that God gives us is that we don't have to do that. God gave us the gift of knowing that no matter what we come across, we don't have to fear it because God is on our side. Up to and including death. Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't be smart and, you know, take proactive steps, right? I'm not saying, don't wear your seatbelt, don't wear your helmet, because we have nothing to fear. No, that is, that's bad theology. That's, that's not what I'm saying at all. But what this idea is getting at is that we don't have to be controlled by fear. It means we don't have to be ruled by fear. Because God has turned our ultimate fear into our ultimate hope. And this is something that Scrooge needs to learn because arguably a lot of Scrooge's actions are driven by fear. Fear of death, fear of becoming poor. Those are the things that Scrooge fears. So lesson number three that Scrooge needs to learn on his journey toward redemption is that God can turn our fears into hope. And this is a lesson that is so important for us today to constantly be reminded of. And especially at this time of year, this time of year when we celebrate the physical embodiment, the coming of that hope into our world in the form of baby Jesus. This is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why we have this entire Advent season, this idea of expectation, because we're excited for the coming hope. We're looking forward to this expectation of freedom, of hope, and of salvation. And that all started on that silent night. Join me as we pray. Dear Lord, we just come before you this morning so incredibly grateful that you are a God who is so big and who is so loving that you have made it so we don't have to fear anything. You are a God who will protect us. You are a God who has gone so far as to give your own son 
to assuage our fear. You have given your son so that we do not have to fear death. So that we can have communion and fellowship with you. And Lord, we, we cannot thank you enough for that amazing gift. Now, Lord, as we go throughout our week, we ask that you would continue to be present with us. Continue to stand with us and walk with us, no matter where we go. In your precious name we pray. Amen.